Our scripture text today comes from Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Nonetheless, those who are in distress won't be exhausted. At an earlier time, God cursed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But later he glorified the way of the sea, the far side of the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in pitch dark land, a light has dawned. You have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you have shattered the yoke that burdened on them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor, because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing it and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as Sheldon mentioned, uh, our our hymn this morning that we're going to be dealing with, the, the Christmas carol is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Um, this, some of this is going to be um, rewrite for some of you because even though I didn't preach on this carol or talk about this carol last year, I did mention it in one of my sermons. Um, and I liked it so much that I decided I wanted to talk about it even more. And again, uh, so when we chose the, the, the scripture texts and the carols for this particular Advent season, this one was a pretty high on my list because the story for me is so amazing and its connections is so amazing. So, um, just putting that out there to let you know. So I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, um, for those who don't know, was written by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, so it wasn't originally written uh, as a carol or as a song. It was written as a poem. Um, so he wrote it in uh, 1863. And the story behind it is quite interesting. So uh, one day, Christmas Day in 1863... Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is sitting in his house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is the Longfellow house, in case you're wondering. This is where he lived. Um, Also was the Revolutionary War headquarters in the Revolutionary War, just for all of you history buffs. Um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was sitting there on Christmas Day uh, at his desk, and he heard uh, bells from a, a local church nearby, right? The bells that signify the beginning of the Christmas Mass or the Christmas Eve service. Um... And, and he was there, and he was kind of thinking through, and, 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 and as the story goes, he was sitting there thinking about what these bells represent, right? We hear church bells, especially we, we talk about bells at the Christmas time, and we think of this idea of, of them heralding in, like the angels' voices, right? The peace on earth, goodwill towards those upon whom God's favor rests, and, and it, it brings up joy, and it brings us this wonderful sense of joy and of the peace of God's kingdom, and, and, and Longfellow was sitting there ruminating over all these things, thinking about how all of these things worked. And, and then he began to, to reflect on his own life. So to, to give some background, for those of you who may not know the historical setting in the United States of America in 1863, the Civil War was going on and had been raging for a while. 
right? So, so you think of, 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 of Longfellow listening to these, these bells on Christmas Day and hearing the bells and, and he begins to, to think about joy and he thinks, thinks about the, the word peace and the, the peace on earth and the, the never-ending peaceful kingdom of God's Messiah. And then he thinks about this war that is raging between north and south. And Longfellow begins to, to think all the more and, and think about what's been going on in his life and dealing with his own personal tragedies. Two years earlier, Longfellow's wife um, had died tragically when her dress caught on fire and consumed her. And, and he had been there and he tried to put it out. In fact, the reason he had a beard his whole life was because he had such bad scarring on his face from trying to put out the fire that was in his wife's dress. And she survived the fire. They got it put out, but ultimately she passed away two years earlier in 1861. So, and this was his second wife. So he's dealing with the loss of, of his wife still. And we know that those losses don't go away quickly. And, and, and then earlier that year in, in November, his son had been wounded in battle in the Civil War. And, and for a while, he didn't know. He just got this telegram that his, his son had been wounded and very badly. And um, you can imagine in, in this particular time, wounds, just surviving a wound was not um, something to rejoice over because it was tenuous. They could get infected. People, could, people died often more of, of the aftercare of the wounds than they did of the wounds themselves. And so, good news, his son had come home. He was actually with Longfellow on that day, but he had been wounded and, and was wounded enough that he couldn't go back and fight, and he, he was forever scarred by his wounds from the Civil War. And, and you think that in, in this context, he's, he's hearing the, the bells of Christmas heralding peace on earth, and there is a disconnect inside Longfellow as he begins to think about what this means as he begins to reflect on the disconnect between this war that is raging in his country over something that he deeply believed in. He was an abolitionist, but, but, but he, he's thinking about the wars and about the loss of life. And, and, and my guess is he is thinking and feeling anything but peace on that Christmas morning. And so, as the story goes, he sat down and he wrote this poem that ultimately turned into the song that we know of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And uh, normally we might play uh, the song, but since you heard it already, I'd rather read the poem to you as he wrote it. Because the song that we sing actually leaves out some, some things that, that Longfellow wrote that are, are very important to as we understand the song and what's going through his mind. So here's the poem as Longfellow wrote it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? We can identify with that. The, the joys of Christmas that we see all around us, that, that, we, that we get to celebrate in, we, we see that and we think peace on earth, it's a promise that God brings, right? God sends God's Messiah into the world to promise peace on earth and we rejoice in that and, and are happy about that. And we think about how, how this has been the, the sort of the message of Christmas time really since, since the church has been around, since Christ uh, rose from the dead, right? The, the, the refrain of the church has been that there is peace on earth in the advent of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and so the next stanza, Longfellow says, and thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom, belfries is where you have bells, right? For those of you who don't know that. Um, of all the Christian world had rolled along the unbroken song for thousands of years of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
And then he goes on and talks about how this, this message has been repeated over and over and over in the church and in the world, over and over. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Now that's the, the song we know. But here's a little more context as Longfellow continues. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You get the, you hear the tension? Sometimes it feels as it did for Longfellow, right? The the, the craziness of the world, the things going on around, the the wars raging around seem to drown out the song. Like we we can sing loudly, but sometimes it feels the world oppressive, anger, war, dissension, division can drown out the song of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Going on, he writes, is, it, is if, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the thousands born of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. The war itself, the things going on are mocking the voice that says peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then he says, and then in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You hear that. You hear the the pain and the sorrow. and, and, And I think some of us have been there in our lives. Some of you might be there even now. This feeling that that there is so much wrong in our world, that there is so much going on. The very voice seems to be drowned out because there is so much hate and so much wrong in our world. It's the, the prophetic voice in us says things should be different. Things should be better. Things shouldn't be this way. And I'm going to hold off on the last stanza for a minute. Because this is kind of where sometimes we find ourselves. And sometimes when I look around the world, this is where I I feel we are. It shouldn't be this way. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ. Why is this still this way? When you hear about Gaza or you hear about what's going on in Ukraine, for me, I tend to think of where is peace on earth? Where are the things that Jesus had promised. And of course, we realize that this has been going on for a long time, and we are not the first to hear these words, nor will we be the last. And, and others have gone through similar things, and, and, and so we're drawn back to the scriptures and, and back to our scripture today. And so I read to you from, from chapter 9 of, of Isaiah, and I just want to give you a little context of where we are in kind of Israel's history when it comes to this. So we have Isaiah, and, and, and Isaiah is looking around, and, and he's seeing the lay of the land around him. So, so here's how things lie in Israel, or in Judah, the southern kingdom, to whom Isaiah is prophesying these words. While we don't know the exact date of when this was written, it's likely it is somewhere between when Israel in the north, um, before Israel in the north falls, and before uh, Judah in the south goes into exile. Somewhere there. So... 
5th, 6th century BC is kind of where we locate this. And so what's going on is there's a military superpower that has arisen in, in kind of the, the region. Um, so if there was a superpower in the, in the ancient Near East, in this particular time and place, it was the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrian Empire is on the, its ascendancy, um, and they are just unstoppable. Right? They're, they're going on wars of conquest throughout the ancient Near East. So Assyria, think of Babylon, think of present-day Iraq, that area, north and east of Israel. And, and they're, just, they're just destroying everything. So anybody who goes up against them, anyone who tries to defeat them, anyone who tries to resist them when they come in, wiped out. Ultimately, Israel and the north will be wiped out completely by the Assyrian Empire. And so this threat is there. And, and while the, the, the people of Israel and the people of Judah aren't conquered people yet, they are vassal states, or they're paying tribute to Assyria so that Assyria won't come in and utterly destroy them. So you have Judah in the south hearing the words of the Lord come to the prophets saying, I am with you. You can resist. Do not give in to Assyria and do not go and go in with anyone else for that matter. I will be your warrior. I will be your rescuer. I will be the one to deliver you. This is the message to the southern kingdom. That same message goes to the northern kingdom, but they're not listening. So, so in this time, what's happening is the northern kingdom has made alliances and has said to Judah, basically, we want to have an alliance with you against Assyria, and if you don't join us, we'll conquer you. Option A, super. Option B is to make an alliance with somebody else, resist Assyria, and perhaps be conquered. Option C is to say, the Lord is our warrior and will fight for us. These are the options. Israel in the north, threatening war. Assyria in the northeast, threatening war. And God's saying, be strong, I am with you. And likely, when Isaiah prophesies this, the king that is in Judah is a king. Oh, man, I've lost it. Anyway, there's a king. (laughs) I lost the name. I blanked on it very quickly. Who basically says, no, I'm going to make an alliance. He wasn't a good king. He he wasn't one who followed Yahweh. And so the people are under this oppression that they they see no way out. There there is virtually no way out. No option is good. Say no to the northern alliance and Israel's going to come in and make war. Say say yes to Israel and then we're at war with Assyria and and nobody's beat Assyria yet. And so it's a time of darkness, of gloom, that the word of the Lord is scarce. All the things that we think about with, with being in despair and in gloom. And it's into that state that Isaiah pens these words, right? Those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. And Isaiah begins to talk about deliverance coming through a new king that's going to arise, about deliverance that will come where the people who have gone out weeping will come together in joy. They will rejoice as with a harvest that there will be a kingdom of peace and of that kingdom there will be no end, that there will be a breaking of the rods of oppression and all the... The, the implements of war, the, the boots that have trampled and the garments of blood, this, this symbol of war and bloodshed and violence are going to be taken off and burned in the fire because they will not be needed anymore. Isaiah talks about this deliverance and this joy, this ascendancy of the kingdom of Israel, of kingdom of Judah, that will be, just be a wonder to behold. 
and begins to talk about these things in a time that is very, very, very dark. And he says that these things will come about not because of a mighty king, but because a baby is born who will be these things. Israel in the north, Assyria in the northeast, trouble everywhere. Guess what, guys? A baby's going to save you. That's not exactly earth-shattering great news to most people. Babies have to grow up. It's going to be a long time. I mean, all this stuff that we might think of, babies, uh, for all their wonder and glory, are not powerful beings. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah says. It's important to note that this, this text has meaning before the church came around. In, in fact, as you study this text and, and you look, you, you might ask, well, who is this child who is to be born? Now, good Christians have great answers for this. Thanks be to Handel Messiah, Handel's Messiah, who tells us, who is this person? Who's the government going to be on their shoulders? Well, it's Jesus, right? That is our first answer. It's a good answer. Jesus is always a good answer. Particularly good one for this question. Who is this child? But, but there's also another meaning here. It had meaning to the people who heard it. So the next king who was born, the child of this king who was wicked, who wasn't great, I want to say Ahaz, but that doesn't sound right. There's another king who was born. He has a son. His name's Hezekiah. You might recognize the name of Hezekiah. Oh, there it is. There's which child? And there we go. There's Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the very few in the southern kingdom of Judah who was a good king. He was a king who was born. He took the throne at a young age and began to rule and to reign. And actually, there was peace and there was joy and there was a return to the Lord in his time. Things were relatively good under King Hezekiah. So, so as we look at it and as we study the scriptures, we see that there is some sort of proximate Fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's and the people's own time through Hezekiah. <clears throat> but we also know that that peace did not last. We also know that though Hezekiah, a great king, things change. And so, and so we, we come to this and we, we think about um, who is this prince of peace. And, and then we, we, we focus our minds on some of the scriptures and some of the things that happen in the New Testament. And we remember that. When Jesus is born, Matthew tells us that there were shepherds keeping watch in a field over their flocks by night. And as those shepherds are watching their flocks by night, what happens? An angel of the Lord appears and says, I have great news, great joy for God's people. And they begin to talk about this Messiah who has been born in Bethlehem. And they call him what? And they say, and peace on those upon whom his favor rests. These angels declare peace and we begin to, to look at Jesus and, he, and, and as we see Jesus grow up, he, he says something like, my peace I give to you. A peace not like the world gives. And then we begin to understand that, that Isaiah can have more than one meaning as we look at it. 
that the prophecies are fulfilled and can be fulfilled in more than one way. And, and the church begins to talk about Jesus, who is, who is not just God's Messiah, which is pretty awesome and good enough, but, but, but he is the Davidic king that was promised so long ago, the one upon whom God's authority would rest and that he would rule and reign in the world. And that we believe as a people of God that, that though Pilate put it on the cross, ironically, when it said king of the Jews, we believe it is true. We believe when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It was true. We believe he is the prince of peace. We believe he is the one who rules and reigns, not just in his own time, so to speak, but forever and ever and ever and ever. We believe Jesus is the one, but, but here we are. We're, we're 2,000 years later. Right? Jesus ascended into heaven and he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And, and, and he gives good news. And we say, all right, Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. He's coming to bring his kingdom. The New Testament church didn't think that they would die before God came and brought the kingdom in its fullness when, when Jesus returned on that white horse, right? And, and established things fully and finally and completely. And then we would know peace. But we look around and we go, where is the peace? Where is the peace that Jesus offered to bring? We see wars in Gaza and Israel. Where is the peace? We see a war in the Ukraine that we thought would be over quickly. And yet it still rages as people fight Oppression for peace. Even our own country. We, we see political differences getting out of hand and spurning to violence. Brother against brother. Father against son. Families torn apart. There are families who won't be together this Christmas because of political divisions. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong. And drowns the song of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. I, I, get, <laughs> I get what Wong Fo was writing. Thankfully, <laughs> scripture isn't in there. Thankfully, Longfellow doesn't end there. We ask, where is the peace? The last words that Isaiah writes in our scripture, I love them. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just think about those words, the zeal, the passion, the determination of the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe, will do this. So let me, let me tell you what I think that means. I think, A, it means we're not very good at doing it on our own. That, that peace on earth is not going to be coming when we try harder, when we're just nicer to one another. I mean, those are great things. So, so be nice to one another, and, and we should try to be a people of peace. We are called, after all, to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. But it doesn't happen by us. 
Right, right. So another treaty is not going to make peace. It may be a peace treaty, but it is not God's peace. For God's peace is something different. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you, you will have heard this. If not, I'm just going to push and plug for Sunday school because we learn stuff. That, that the peace that we hear about in scriptures is not just a, an end of violence. Right, so, so you might think that, that two countries go to war and they just finally either because one's tired, losing more people, or just because they think this can't go on, they say, okay, we'll agree not to shoot at each other anymore. That's not peace. I mean, that may be a peace treaty. That, that's a cessation of violence I, to an extent, but, but that's not the peace that, that we, we hear about and that we, we hear Jesus talk about and we hear the scriptures talk about. What we hear Jesus talk about, what we hear the scriptures talk about is a peace called shalom peace. And, and shalom, there's a great video on it. You should re- watch it. Bible Project, great. Um, but the short version is shalom basically means wholeness, completeness, overall well-being. You cannot be physically fighting with someone and not have well-being, either between you or in yourself. Because well-being means that I care about what happens to you and you care about what happens to me and that we work for each other's flourishing. That's shalom peace. And that's the peace that Jesus talks about when he talks about the peace of the coming kingdom. And that's what Isaiah talks about when he talks about the peace that comes through the God who is so committed to these things that God has promised to make it happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It also means that God cares far more about this than we do. And if God is committed to something happening, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because because of the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to finish what God starts. So what enables Isaiah to pen these words? What what enables the church throughout these years to say, peace on earth, good will to men? It's not because the objective reality of the world says it. It's the hope that we have in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that God is faithful to God's promises. If you were here last week, you heard some words about hope from Pastor Sheldon. If you weren't here last week, go and watch the sermon. It's worth seeing. If you were here last week, watch it again. It's worth watching again. Because the hope we have is grounded not just in some optimism that things are going to work out, but in the faithfulness of the God whom we claim to serve. And because our hope is grounded in a faithful God, who does what God promises, we can believe that there will be peace on earth and goodwill towards men as it is described in the scriptures. Shalom. That is why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we believe that God is faithful to accomplish these things even when sometimes it doesn't look like it. In, in one of the other scripture readings for today that we didn't read comes from Second Peter where, where basically Peter answers the question, why is God delaying? Why is God tarrying? And, and, and basically <laughs> what Peter says is God tarries because God loves everyone and wants to see everyone come to repentance. 
And what seems like a long time to us is for God not a long time at all. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And so Peter encourages his, his listeners not to get involved in sort of the debate of, of, of the whens and the hows and the whys. <coughs> Why is God waiting? Other than to say God waits so that people might come to repentance. And then Peter asks this question. He basically says the world's going to be melted like wax. God's going to make all things new. And he says, since things are going to happen in this way, what kind of people ought we to be here and now as we await for God's fullness? If you remember Sheldon's Venn diagram from last week, the already and the not yet. We believe that in Christ, Christ has inaugurated a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God. But we also believe that it's not quite happened in its fullness. And so we live in the meantime of the already not yet. And since things aren't in their fullness now, how ought we be in the meantime? What kind of people and lives ought we be living in the meantime? Well, Jesus has some stuff to say about this. You might recall that Jesus preached a sermon and talked about what it looked like to be a people of the kingdom of God. Talked about being peacemakers. Not just lack of conflict makers, although that's a good start, but shalom makers. How do we work for the flourishing of those around us? So it's not just we're amicable to one another, but that we care deeply and intimately about the lives of one another and desire to see them flourish in all the ways that's possible. Jesus tells us how to live as a people of the kingdom, which makes us look strange, right? We look strange in a world that oftentimes works for their own interests above anyone else's. A a world that looks to maximize profit to the extent and as much as you can before people stop buying your stuff. And that's pretty far. Who, Who looks at a world sometimes that looks at other people as means to an end. How can I get more money out of you? How can I get you to keep coming to the trough and keep paying for the thing so that I can keep getting rich? We live differently and say, not how can I get the most so that when I die, things will be good, but how can I work as a person of God for the flourishing of my neighbor, whoever they may be? What kind of people ought we be in the meantime? We are called to be a people of peace. Peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But at the very least, we are called to be a people of faith. A people who hold on to this idea of the faithfulness of God, that if, that if we're told the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do this, to live in such a way as if we believe it is true. As if we believe that, that this kingdom described in the prophets, the kingdom described, the kingdom of justice, the kingdom of peace, the kingdom under the rule of God, we live as if that is a reality here and now, because for us it is, because we follow that king. And if we follow the king, we live by the ways of that kingdom. And it calls us to be a people of faith who say, sometimes it doesn't look like there is peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But 
but we believe God is doing this in our midst now and will do this in its fullness in the future. And I need to grab a hymnal because I, of course, brought a printout that didn't have the last verse on it. And I want to read you the last verse as Longfellow wrote it. Then pealed the vowels more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We are a people who peal like those bells, sometimes beyond reason, beyond optimism, into hope. To say yes to the Lord who calls us to be a people of peace and to live as a people of his peaceful kingdom. And so when we sing here today, when we, when we sing joy to the world this morning, sometimes it doesn't feel like the world is very joyful. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there's much joyful news, but we sing it in defiance of a world that would tell us that God has abandoned us in defiance of those who says there is no peace on earth. We desire to be like those bells, voices that rise above the din to declare God is not dead and God does not sleep. The wrong will fail and the right prevail. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If God is on the job, we can believe it is true. And so we occupy ourselves asking the question, what kind of people ought we be in the meantime? As we await for God to bring God's kingdom in its fullness, how ought we live loving and serving one another, loving and serving God in the meantime? To declare and to live peace on earth and goodwill towards others. As we are in the Advent season, as we think about it, and and again, as I reflect on that, that last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, we are reminded that it doesn't come by trying harder and being better. God's on the case. It it comes by submitting to the one who has shown us in the past and continues to show us in the present that God is faithful. God does this through God's own action. God is able to secure shalom peace in this world, not through coercion and not through power, not through fire from heaven, at least not this time. God secures shalom in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we think about and think on what it means to be a people of peace in the meantime, we know that it starts with following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who being very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead emptied himself and became a servant, even to death at the cross. And it is in his death that Christ reveals the true nature of God's peaceable kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to gather together for communion and remember 
that decisive act in history wherein God makes and begins to make all things new. Because we are here because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other reason. Not because we're good people. Not because we're so talented. You all are very talented. But we're here because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And as we take this meal together, we declare that hope, sometimes a defiant hope, that Christ is risen and that his kingdom is coming and in reality is here among us. And so we commit ourselves anew today to live as people of his peaceable kingdom. We have no other master but Christ. We have no other savior but Christ. And this we declare this morning. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong will, prov- will fail, and the right, because of the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will prevail, prevail, and bring peace on earth and goodwill towards all upon whom his favor rests. James, where are you? James is going to come up and help me with communion this morning. And just a little reminder of how we're, we, we're doing this. We, we've got a habit now, but just in case you don't remember, we'll gather and come down this aisle. You'll receive the elements here, and then you can go back to your seats down this aisle. So this aisle is the entrance. There's your exit. Okay? All right. The communion supper was instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a sacrament which proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit, and it is to be received reverently and in appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Jesus Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to this table that we might be renewed in life and salvation, and that we might be made one by the Spirit. In the unity of the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And so we pray, Holy God, We gather at this your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and he established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts. Make them be for us the power of your spirit. 
Make them be for us, the body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, Lord, make us one in Christ with each other and the ministry of Christ to the world until Christ comes in final victory. And now I would ask, as the Savior has taught us, would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I would invite you that as you come and receive the bread and the cup, if you would hold on to it at your seats, and then once we have all been served, we will take it together.